Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. What up, sharks? You're listening to Champagne Sharks. I'm Vita Starr, and along with me are my special guests. Manuel Rustin and Jeffrey Garrett. They are educators here in California. Jeffrey Garrett is the Senior Vice President of Leadership Development at the Partnership for LA Schools. Manuel Rustin is an in-classroom teacher who teaches history and ethnic studies. Welcome, guys. What's good? What's good? Yeah, good to be here. These two wonderful, amazing Black men are hosts of a great podcast called All of the Above Podcast. It's an educational podcast. Well, when I say educational, it's really for educators and teachers, I would say, mostly, right? Yeah, and, and folks just concerned about our school systems and, and what we need to do to, to bring some, some justice to our school system. So yeah, you don't necessarily have to be an educator. Uh, definitely if you are a parent of, of a child. Oh yes, parents, yes. That too, yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you if you pay property tax in this country and you have a vested interest in school, then you might want to check out all the above. Oh, there we go. That's that's a that better too, way to yeah. put it. There we so go. anyone, whether you're an educator or a parent or a community member, anyone who is interested in understanding education on a not just a, a local level, but on a policy level, you need to be watching all listening to and watching all of the above podcasts. So you guys have created this wonderful podcast because you guys are two amazing black men in education, which, by the way, is a conversation that's been happening, too, that there aren't enough black male educators. So before we get into, you know, your podcast, let's, let me ask you about that. Have you guys noticed that there has been a decrease or less black male educators or do you feel like that's changing? Started with the tough one. Sorry, guys. Yeah, no. I mean, where's the softball <laughs> question? Can we get something easy? Something like, oh, is that, why is that your what's, what's, what's your favorite color, Doctor Rustin? Let's uh, let's let's start with that. Uh, I I will say, um, you know, I'm I'm not a hundred percent certain of the national data as to whether the number of black male educators is decreasing. Um, so I don't want to say one way or another on that. I will say I have certainly been a part of lots of conversations. Um, at a policy level with folks who are working on this issue here at, you know, at the state level in California and locally um, as well, as well as folks I know in districts across the country um, who are, you know, putting in work, trying to um, recruit, retain, create, you know, environments, professional environments that are sustaining um, for educators of color generally and specifically for black male educators. So it is an issue. Um, it is also something that, um, you know, that that folks are working hard on to try to address. Um, but it's a you know, it's a big problem because every aspect of the system from the experience people have in public schools when they're kids that may or may not result in them wanting to, you know, envision themselves working in that system to, you know, the cost and accessibility of teacher education programs to, you know, the, the lack of 
diversity of professional options available for folks who are graduating from, you know, from teacher ed programs to the experience folks have, you know, as oftentimes a, um, a loan or a, you know, sort of one of very few um, black male educators or educators of color in their school site. There's a lot of layers to the issue. So it remains a big issue. Um, but, uh, you know, folks, folks are working um, to try to make a difference here. Yeah, a lot of good folks are working on that. So shout out to Black Teacher Project. Shout out to the Bond Project. There's a lot of good folks out there trying to uh, boost the numbers. But yeah, it's uh, not enough of us, that's for sure. Travis Bristol uh, is another name, a professor up at Berkeley who's, who's been on the show and um, you know, is putting in a lot of work here in California on this issue for sure. What would you say were, were some of those barriers to getting more Black men in education? Is it that they're any going to school to learn it? Are they not taking the, the test to become teachers? Are they getting the tests? Are they going to get the education, but they're just not getting hired? What would you say was the biggest barrier? Honestly, it's it's a little bit of all that. It's uh, all of the above. Um, for one. <laughs> <laughs> nice plug. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for one, the school system, you know, when it comes to to black students, the school system in a lot of ways just likes to chew chew them up and spit them out. So a lot of folks, in terms of advancing into into college and wanting to uh, pursue a career in education and go back to some some refer to it as like going back to the scene of the crime or going back to the scene of of the trauma. Uh, it's almost like set up to fail because when you already underserved students, underserved black students specifically, uh, to such a degree. Uh, why would they want to go back? Why would they want to be teachers and, and navigate the same oppressive site, um, but through another level? So that that's a big problem. And then, of course, all the all the logistical um, challenges of of actually being able to pursue higher education and afford higher education, and you rack up the student debt, and a career in in public education for sure is not known as a career that's going to bring in a whole lot of money either. So for a lot of folks, it's like you know, I would love to help out, but financially. It's uh, it's to my detriment to pursue a career in the classroom for sure. So it's a little bit of all that, I would say. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't even consider that maybe it wasn't seen as a job that or a career where you could, you know, make enough money to get yourself out of whatever the debt that you put yourself in um, trying to get the education. Yeah, yeah. It's a very real issue. Very real issue. And just just to add one quick thing, not only even thinking about the the income that folks make, um, especially in certain parts of this country where teachers, for all intents and purposes, live in poverty for their first you know few years. Um, but even the cost that it would take to get to that point, right? Like, can you afford the undergraduate and graduate school tuition it takes to even be able to get to the threshold of becoming a teacher is cost prohibitive for a lot of folks. So, you know, you kind of have a, a double whammy um, on that front. I had this experience when I was teaching. Um, I teach trauma-informed compassionate classrooms. And in one of the trainings I was doing was at a charter school on the east side of South Central. So for those of you guys who aren't from L.A., the east side of South Central is like one of the most neglected areas of L.A. So it's a lot, it's a lot of high violence there. It's a, very, it's a school where the children have experienced a lot of trauma. And so they have, uh, you know, this charter school there and they have these educators there. And I was training the teachers, the new, com- the new incoming teachers. And there was literally only one black male in that entire group. And it must have been about 40 people, 40 teachers in total. Or educators. I don't know if they were all teachers, but you know, there was only one black male, 
one. And I liked him a lot. In the training, I thought he did great because he was very blunt. He was very honest. Me and um, the other trainer that was with me, we actually thought he was probably one of the best people in the class because he understood the material around trauma. He argued with us a bit, but even in his arguments, he made really good points. And we just wanted to make sure we addressed them clearly. Well, the principal of the school didn't like him for whatever reason. She was she was a non-black person. And she even pulled him out at one point to talk to him like he was a child. It really made me uncomfortable. And then um, I found out when we went back through the next training, because it was, it was in parts, he was actually let go. And I was shocked. And I talked to the person that was training with me and I said, did you notice like what was going on? She was kind of oblivious. She's not black. She wasn't paying attention. <laughs> but I picked up on it pretty quickly because he, the problem was we were talking about um, trauma and he had an experience where I guess his mother was a heroin addict. So he had sort of this sort of blame. He was like kind of projecting and blaming people who were addicts. But once we had the full conversation, he actually opened up and it was really beautiful. I thought it was a beautiful moment because this is what we want the teachers to be able to do as well, right? But the principal apparently had issues with him, thought he was, you know, too defiant, which is always the problem that they say that Black men have. And so I just imagine how that same principal is working with the Black males in that school. So I always thought about that. I mean, mean the Black boys, the students, this is elementary school. So that made me step back and say, wait a minute, how are these Black male teachers being treated even once they get hired? And I'm interested in hearing your take on that. I mean, in your experience, maybe not you directly, maybe you directly, or things that you've seen. Have you seen Black male educators being um, marginalized even after they're hired? I would say most definitely. And I would say it's even worse for Black women teachers. I think for Black male teachers, a lot of times in a lot of school sites, I know when I first started teaching my first year, teaching, uh, we're sort of positioned as like the disciplinarians because it's kind of just assumed that you're like, you're the male, you're black, like you could reach these kids and you could be the one to like, quote unquote, control them. And I remember my, the start of my school year or my um, teaching career, I, I flourished in my classes. Like I loved my classes. I was back in South Sacramento where I grew up and I just loved it. I remember one day the principal coming into me, she was a white woman and uh, she was just like, wow, I'm just so impressed. Like you, the kids really love you and you do such a good job and considering it's, it's so many gang members in your classes. This is just really what? great. Yes. And I remember thinking like, I had never, like in my head, I had never, you know, never seen them as gang members. And and honestly, none of them to my knowledge were active except for one. But, you know, all, you know, a lot of them like kind of played the role or whatever, whatever. But it's just like, these ain't gang members, man. Like these are young kids from the same neighborhood I grew up in. And I just remember at that moment realizing that like, okay, I'm, I'm the, the quote unquote disciplinarian, like keep, the, keep these kids in line type of person. It's just like, that's not, that, that's not why I got into this profession. And uh, so many other Black male teachers specifically are sort of like cornered into that like disciplinarian type of role and given the, the, the more challenging students. And throughout my career, I've, I've experienced like having kids shifted to my class or put in my classroom because like the other teacher couldn't handle them and you're the only teacher that uh, could get through to the kid, whatever, whatever, whatever. But when it comes to women teachers, specifically black female teachers, uh, it's, it's a, I've witnessed a whole lot of like, 
yeah, this this person is just like they're talking too much and they're 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 stirring up too much fuss. And it's like you're outspoken and advocating for for our young people. And a lot of administrators, a lot of white administrators that maybe got into it to, you know, for not good purposes, a, a lot of them aren't trying to hear that. So the the dude that you pointed out, I wouldn't be shocked if that pr- principal didn't want to hear like the hard truth from that from that teacher and was like yo this I'd rather him not be here than than speak these hard facts and I, in my experience like black women teachers have been been the loudest advocates for our kids and they're they I don't know what the numbers are for black women teachers compared to black male teachers but but I know that like the profession is especially hard from my vantage point on on our women teachers and it's a, a really tough spot to be in when you are trying to advocate and be passionate for our students but it's perceived as being too aggressive or not being a team player and all, and all of that it's just a it's it's a challenge man it's a challenge I imagine oh, I'm sorry go ahead Jeffrey Oh well I was just going to add I you know totally agree with what Manuel is saying there and I think there is often like this kind of additional labor that black educators are asked to do that is typically not compensated for, right? So if you're the teacher that the other teachers are sending the kids who are acting up to your room because they will behave in your presence type of a thing, or they respect you or whatever, that's extra work that those educators are taking on. Um, That is not, you know, it's not like you're getting a bigger paycheck for doing that, right? And there's, I think there's many layers of that kind of thing where the additional stress, the additional you know, fatigue, expectations of kind of carrying the weight of, you know, being responsible for the outcomes and the success of a set of students that the rest of the school community is overtly or, you know, or um, uh, subconsciously carrying out practices that, that have an oppressive effect on those students. And, um, and so I think there's a, there's a wear and tear that comes with that on a lot of black educators that I do think, you know, tends to contribute to the lack of retention, right? Because one thing to hire folks and get folks through the pipeline, it's another thing to keep folks, um, you know, working in the classroom for a long period of time. And that's, that's a huge issue for us as well. Yeah, I can definitely see that as, I can definitely see that 100% because I've seen it not only in education, I've actually seen that in social services as well, where a lot of the black staff will go above and beyond and burn themselves out trying to help. And they don't actually have the full support of the system that's supposed to be paying them. Right. Um, the other thing I was thinking about, and this is to Manuel's point, I was thinking like, because you pointed out how hard it is on black women. And I'm wondering if it's similar to how I see the medical industry. I know that sounds like a jump, but it's not. So <laughs> hospitals, for example, are known for killing black women more than any other group, right? I'm saying kill. I'm not saying neglect. I'm saying literally kill for a reason. Like we've literally been dying in like emergency rooms. We die at, you know, giving birth more than any other uh, race of women. And I'm wondering if those numbers are so big in particular with women and not as much for men because there are just not as many men going to the hospital or going to the doctor as much as black women do, right? Um, probably because women are the ones who have a baby. So we have a lot of, you know, stuff in our systems that we have to get checked on very regularly. Um, whereas men kind of don't go as, men in general don't go to the doctor as often as women and black men go less than like everybody else. And understandably so, there's a lot of fear around the doctor. So I'm wondering if part of the reason why it's, it's, it's like, Black women who are in these systems, because it's probably more black. I, in my experience, there's more black women in education than black men. And I'm wondering if that's why it's so hard on black women, because there's so many of them there and they're the ones advocating. 
I think that I think that resonates, right? Um, that there is there in general, the teaching profession is overwhelmingly female, right? Like there's there's sort of a gendered history of the job that I I, I think crosses racial um, you know racial Absolutely. lines for sure. Um, and and in a in a sense, I agree with what Manuel said um, about the you know the the situation being you know even tougher on black women. Um, in many ways, I think there's also, you know, the other side of that coin, which which is what I was kind of hearing from you, um, is there's an extent to which black men are not socialized, conditioned, etc., to be able to um, to deal with some of the things that are happening in schools, right? Like the right. Ex- the extra emotional labor, which is a lot of what, you know, teachers are doing in the context where most black educators are, you know, are concentrated. A lot of men are, are not taught, raised, reared, equipped, skilled, learned enough um, at like dealing with those feelings and dealing with those emotions, right? In healthy and constructive ways. And I think there's, which is not to say that the women who are able to persevere through, <laughs> through those situations, you know, for longer or more effectively are, you know, are not experiencing a toll from that as well. But it's just to say, I think in some ways, in, you know, in a strange way, we, we are better equipping women to, you know, to enter into that space and uh, and be able to persist than we are with a lot of men. Yeah, I think that's there's a lot of merit to that, especially even if we look at how kids are treated in schools, right? Like all the studies show how black students are treated versus non-black students, and particularly how black boys are treated versus pretty much all the other groups, male or female. And you'll definitely see that the support for black males starting in childhood isn't there. So how do you know how to really connect um, emotionally if you've been taught to shut down those emotions, right? Um, And I've watched it happen in schools by black teachers. Most of the schools I've worked at, with the exception of one, have been black schools, predominantly black, right? So I worked in Inglewood at a predominantly black school. I worked in Watson, a predominantly black school. And I worked in Redondo at a predominantly white and Asian school. And I can definitely tell you, I've seen how black students in general are treated which is part of the reason why I went to the work that I did. But I saw specifically how black teachers were te- treating black boys. And that stuff stood out to me because I noticed that there was a lot more, not saying that this is a good thing, but there was a lot more, um, I don't wanna even want to say, I- I'll, I'll change that. There are, there's a lot more support for girls when it comes to emotions. People are more patient with girls when it comes to emotions. I've watched it. I'm sure you guys have seen it. But when it comes to boys, people tend to be more like toughen up. And they never taught how to really explore that. I've watched a teacher shut down. Actually, I watched a teacher, one of the most painful experiences I've ever had. And I might have told you guys this story is I had a teacher when I was I was a TA and there was a teacher who was subbing. It was a black woman and it was a little boy. He was Afro Latino and she screamed in his face. Second grade classroom. You are not grown. I'll run this classroom. He had him stand up in the class. So she could yell at him. And I I told you how I watched his spirit break right in like it was all over his face. I even tried to report it to our black female principal. And she was like, well, she didn't care. Mostly she felt like, well, she's disciplining her classroom. That was her attitude. Because, you know, these kids, these black kids, they out of pocket. You know, the sad part is you have black educators who also inhibit a lot of those 
white supremacist systematic ideas around working with children. And that was one of the moments that really opened my eyes to how black boys are treated versus other groups. And I'm wondering if you guys have also picked up on that. Yeah, that that's that's big facts. I mean, um, I myself, just as as an educator, I've realized that like over time, just the importance of being really purposeful in how I interact with students, but how I interact with the system, because like it, it's it's become more and more clear that like the overlap between the teaching profession and the policing profession, like there's so much overlap there because you see, you know, cops of color who get into it because they want to do right for the community. They want to, you know, they want to be better. They want to do this. They want to do that. And then they inherit the same type of oppressive behaviors that they so-called were, were uh, trying to fight against by joining the profession because the system is so strong. It's so strong in, in just like seeping into your being and telling you that you have to do it this way with these students because otherwise the world's going to, you know, if, if, if you let them get away with talking loud or being like this or being out their seat, the next teacher or later on in the world, later on in their life, like someone's not going to have that and they're going to be set behind. So there's a lot of teachers out there who think that screaming in the kid's face to discipline them is teaching them a lesson about how the world interacts with them so that they can do better down the line. But in reality, it's crushing their spirit and setting them up for, 10 more years of hating school and hating teachers and not trusting teachers and just feeling like school is not for them, feeling like school is a prison. And there's so much of that. Like when, when we talk about the numbers of, of uh, black educators, like, yes, we need, we definitely need a lot more, but like somebody being a black educator, that does not at all mean they are uh, automatically inherently better than a white educator because too many times they inherit this. They, they just, they have the same behaviors, the same oppressive uh, mindset about what school should be like and what these students should be behaving like as, as the white teachers. And it's, it's a hell of a mess. I, I, like when I look at my own career, I like just, I I feel like I dodged that somehow because nobody, like my whole time I was told like, you know, discipline, test scores, all that stuff. And I don't know how I ended up being the teacher that I am now. That's so not about that because really I feel like I was, it was like handed to me on a platter that like, yo, you are the command and control teacher. Everyone's going to respect you. And we're going to, you know, tough love, tough love. But that, that tough love, is just nonsense. Like it's just oppression with, you know, we throw in the word love, like we were caring, but it's, it's not that at all. And I'm just thankful for myself that I dodged that, but I don't know how I did. <laughs> and I know our system isn't setting up uh, educators to, um, to, you know, think differently and think in a, in a more uh, humanizing way about students. Not at all. I, I want to just like um, come back for a second to the, to the sort of uh, sharpness of your question that example you gave of a you know a black boy being uh just sort of uh put into this this uh tiny box of 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 acceptable male emotion right and there's a there's a very real long-term um harm that i think it gets done and to a certain extent this is just true of like how patriarchy operates across the country or, or globally even, right? But especially in our context here, and especially in, in the situation where we find ourselves, which is having to deal with the emotional labor and weight of a racist society that also constantly gaslights us and says it's not racist as it's, you know, punching us in the face or kneeing us in the, you know, in the neck or whatever. Um, And I think there is, uh, I think part of the reason that we see the disparities we see between um, black women and black men has to do with 
the the ways in which we are doing additional harm to our boys by doing the kinds of things that you that you name there by telling them oh you know um, toughen up you know don't cry um, you know you can't talk about your feelings so so they get to high school and all they can do is say I'm you know I'm angry or I'm you know lusting after this girl or I'm happy right and there's like no other range Those are three of, acceptable emotions yeah right? exactly right and 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 then what happens is when any anytime you're a little upset anger becomes you know the only vehicle for expression of that feeling that anger is either going to get turned on someone else or something else or on yourself right and have destructive consequences and and what is actually a very rational response to an oppressive system right that um that stacks the decks against you and you see this happening at the same time as we see all the messages about the meritocracy, you know, the, the land of, of hopes and dreams and whatnot that America is supposed to be, um, you know, is there's a maddening effect to experiencing that all the time. And I think we are, are harming our boys' ability to have some of the skill sets to actually, like, persevere through the, the traumatic experience that is being a Black person in America. And so... Anyways, uh, you know, I think there's there's a lot to what you were saying there. Yeah, I, I appreciate everything you just said. Absolutely. And I'm also wondering, is there, and you guys know better than me, I wasn't trained formally as, as an educator or anything. Would you say that teachers are properly prepared and trained to work with Black children? Uh, I, I would say no. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> Wait, pretty much a flat. It was it's, a pause and then like, uh, no. I mean, like, what kind of fucking question is that? No, I'm just messing with you. It, it's, it's pretty much a, a direct and flat no, but I will say it does vary from program to program. One thing that is, I, I don't know if it's a good thing or not about the teaching profession, but uh, teaching credentialing programs, they, you know, you can look at 10 different programs and they have 10 different approaches, 10 different structures, 10 different um, setups for for student teaching and mentor teaching and, and what the students engage in and all that. So uh, I would say it probably varies program by program, but generally speaking across the board, hell nah, they don't do right by by us, uh, you know, for sure. Yeah, that's that is. Uh, yeah, that's 100 percent true. And I would say on top of that, this is also one of the ways, um, Vita, where there's like a structural barrier put in place um, that prevents us from doing right uh, by kids and communities, right? Because for the most part, teacher education programs in this country are very short, right? They're, you know, 12 month, one year programs. Maybe they go longer, but they're part time or that kind of thing. And, um, and people are often given just this like rapid crash, crash course into this very layered, complex profession where one ostensibly should have expertise in human development, in learning theory, in curriculum development, in assessment, in social and emotional learning, uh, restorative practices, relationship building, some amateur version of therapy and mental health and, you know, being a sort of first responder on that front. There's, and the list goes on, right? And there's no way a person develops expertise in all those things in a, in a one-year program, right? And so we have a situation where even as a profession where we recognize there's a need, right? And I would say to their credit, many teacher ed programs have said, whoa, this is a, 
this is an area where we need to do better. So let's do better. But what do we have available? We have the same 12 month program with, you know, we got to cram all these things in. And the reality is there's not enough time uh, built in for folks to develop the skill set and the experience. And why is there not enough time? Because people can't afford to take on the debt to get their their teaching credential when they're only going to make you know, in some states, you start as a first year teacher making $30,000 a year, $27,000 a year, right? Um, which is, you know, just a totally inadequate salary as a, as a person in most, you know, urban areas in this country generally, but um, especially if you're coming out of school with a mound of debt, right? So there, there's this issue where like, even if we recognize the problem, and want to do something about it, we as a society haven't invested properly to actually produce the teachers who graduate with the skill sets that we need in our communities. As you're, as you're in your role as senior vice president of leadership development, is that what, are you working on developing teachers? Yeah, so my, my role um, focuses on uh, administrators and on teacher leaders primarily. So those are kind of the main groups of folks who I work with. So generally, I'm not working directly with new teachers to the profession. I'm working with folks who are, you know, leading teams or, or colleagues at their site. But even in that context, and even in a situation where we have, you know, people with lots of experience and, you know, who are doing a lot of the great practices that, that we're talking about here, um, you know, the reality is like it took hundreds of years to build up this, you know, racist classes system we have. And it doesn't undo itself because you have a group of like minded people who want it to be that way in a school. It takes a lot of effort. And so, you know, that is a huge part of what we, you know, of what we work on. Everything from, you know, uh, culturally responsive curriculum to pedagogy in the classroom to, you know, policies around discipline, practices and systems for family engagement. Um, you know, all any and all of that stuff is um, is a big part of of the work for sure. Is there a way to educate educators on their own racism and biases because I think sometimes that's where people are oblivious and what I mean by that is in my experience working with teachers a lot of them think that they're already not racist right um because they feel like well I, I would work with anybody I would work with all in fact I came here to help all the Negroes right and they'll have sort of <laughs> I just love how you said Negroes in that, in that sentence <laughs> that, that was a really accurate impression right there <laughs> Listen, I've, I've worked in schools and I've worked in, in, in services and programs along with schools enough to hear the same, you hear the same thing every time. And it's amazing to me how much people don't recognize what they're saying. So I'm interested in knowing from your perspective, is there a way to really educate them to understand their own racism? Because if you've been raised in a racist society, let's, let me just say it straight out. Let's, if you're white, and you've been raised in a white supremacist society that has told you that your race is superior your entire life, right? And if they didn't outright tell you, you saw it clearly based off of who's the majority that you see on TV, who's the, who are do you see mostly in powerful positions, who mostly gets praised, who get, you know, that kind of thing, right? So you've already been conditioned with all these biases about people and groups. And then you go into the education system because you have in your mind that, you know, you're a savior because that's the, the whole, isn't that called like savior syndrome or something, white savior syndrome? So they come in, they come to the hood. I'm saying hood because I'm from South Central. So I always say they come to the hood, they come here, and then 
they don't realize they're not getting the response that they expected to get. And then when they don't get the response that they wanted, meaning, you know, a bunch of grateful Negroes happy to, that they came to save them, they start getting resentful and angry. And then they start saying, I don't, it's like these, these borderline racist things, they don't realize are racist. I'm, can you educate that out of somebody? Can that be taught? Can that be retrained? To an extent, to an extent, yes. Um, especially now, there are, there's more and more discussion about, about what you just pointed out. And I have, I have known many educators, many white educators who, whose practice has changed remarkably over the years as they become aware of their, um, the ideas that they enter the profession with and how those ideas are incredibly racist and oppressive. I'm, I'm thinking of one teacher in particular who I worked with in the past, a, a white teacher who prided themselves on how many students got Fs in their class because this was a, a one of those teachers that was like, you know, students got to step up to the challenge. My class is hard. They got to step in and, and uh, our black students hated that class and they did so poorly. And fast forward a number of years, like when I have conversations with that educator, they are totally different. They are totally changed. I even um, had a conversation with them when the pandemic started. I um, Jeff and I on our show were talking about, uh, we had a guest named Leo Glaze on and we're talking about grading and what should be, what, what should grading look like during the pandemic? And long, long story short, uh, we arrived at the conclusion that until everything got set right, like you got to just give the kids A's because it's not their fault that everything's falling apart around them. Anyways, this once super oppressive, super racist educator I was convinced that like, yes, like true equity would be like throwing out the grading system. The grading system is not a measure of one's uh, academic strengths at all. It's really a measure of who's able to uh, you know, meet whatever arbitrary setups that we have in terms of turning in things uh, during deadline, making sure they, they look the way we want them to look and this and that. And this educator totally flipped their, the way they grade. And that's just one small example of like, yes, there are educators who realize over time that like, oh, what I thought was maybe helping students prepare for the real world actually was holding them back in so many ways. I wouldn't say it's common. I would say most educators don't want to hear that what they believe to be correct is actually incorrect. I would say most educators think like at the end of the day, the students have to do it this way because in the real world, you can't be in the workplace and and talk back to your to your boss in this way or dress however you want or turn in things at your own leisure. Like you got, and, and that mindset is, is very pervasive in our profession, but I've seen many educators gradually learn that those are all rooted in white supremacy. They're all rooted in this idea that one particular culture is the proper culture and everybody else has assimilate to that. Otherwise, they're the ones who are wrong. Like I've seen a lot of educators grow out of that. Not enough, but I've, I've definitely seen it happen. There's no one way for it to happen, I would say, though. There's no one training or one particular book or one particular approach that like does that. But educators who are willing to consider the fact that perhaps they're looking at things the wrong way, I've seen a lot of those educators grow and change their practices. That was just one example. You're absolutely right. I just want to be clear. You're, I, I, like earlier, I said it's even black educators. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And 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 here in LA, we have the fascinating uh, situation where it's very difficult to talk about what the reality is in LA schools because we are so we have gone so long as a country without addressing the sort of fundamental like colonial Europeans oppressing Native Americans and, you know, colonial Europeans creating the, the transatlantic slave trade. We've gone so long talking about race and never having made those situations right. It's hard for us to talk about um, other racial dynamics. And the reality is here in L.A., you know, most teachers aren't white. 
and most principals aren't white. And most folks who are district, you know, officials and leaders, most of the school board isn't white, right? And so we have a system that is primarily, not certainly not exclusively, but primarily run and operated by educators and policymakers of color. And yet we still see a lot of the same dynamics that you see in situations where it is white folks running the system, right? And I think that's just a, that just proves the point that it's not necessarily just, although representation is certainly important, representation does not equal justice, right? And Facts. so there's Say a- Say that, it, Jeff. Sorry. Yeah, you preach it right now. There's a there's an ongoing discipline that's required to when you're operating in a system where it's so easy to do what we all experienced when we were young, to revert to the way things have always been done. It is it takes ongoing interrogation and discipline to transform those kinds of systems and practices into something that most of us never experienced when we were in school. A, t- a grading system, like Manuel is saying, that doesn't have baked into it all of these invisible, um, you know, layers of oppression for students who don't come from, uh, you know, a house with a lot of money or who don't um, speak the same type of English as what's written in the books, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so we have to be engaged in the constant practice of saying, you know, of interrogating what we're doing and trying to find the ways in which we may even unintentionally, but often, you know, it's, it's maybe it's not intentional, but it's like we know that this is how this works, right? It produces a line of black boys outside the principal's office. So how do we interrupt that, right? And what are we going to do differently? And that takes everybody's effort, not just, um, you know, certainly white educators got a lot of work to do, but so do educators of color. Yeah, I I 100% agree with that. And that's, that's, like I said, at most of the schools I've worked at, the staff was not uh, predominantly white. Most of the schools I went to, I grew up going to schools that were the students were predominantly black and Latino, um, and the staff was predominantly black and Latino. Uh, We might have had maybe one or two school principals that were white, um, one or two, you know, a few teachers, maybe a counselor or two. But normally, you're right. It's At least here in L.A., I've noticed in my experiences, it's not majority white people. But also, like you're pointing out, the system itself is still there. It's still a white supremacist system that people are getting hired into and, and continuing to work in that system. And they're trying to do the best that they can, I think, in their areas. And I think the problem is that teachers are very limited, right? Because you're given the curriculum that you have to teach. Like, there's a role that education plays in America. And that's not decided by the people on the ground. And I'm curious to know what you guys believe the role education plays in America as far as as far as how I would say what is the goal of education in in America? And I'll be asking the tough ones. I'm sorry, y'all. That's, <laughs> that, I, I think that probably depends on who you ask. Uh, OK, go for it. Yeah. I mean, I think the where we started this conversation in some ways, the, the debate around critical race theory um, or so, so-called critical race theory uh, is is surfacing people's different understandings of the answer to your question, right? Because there are some folks who think the purpose of education is about preserving the racial caste system and the class-based caste system that, that we have always had in this country. You know, and maybe you tinker around the margins because, you know, it's like inefficient to, to not allow someone as talented as, you know, Oprah or Barack Obama to, to 
rise and flourish, right? Um, and you can use that as a great example for, for the regular people about how all they have to do is work hard and, and it'll, they can be like that too, right? Um, so you have a lot of folks who really believe in their hearts, right? They might not be burning crosses and wearing sheets the way that, you know, the way that they did 50 years or 100 years ago, right? They wear suits or they wear red hats and they show up at, you know, at school board meetings now. But, um, but they, they believe that the purpose is about the preservation of the caste system. And, uh, and then there's folks who believe something radically different, you know, who, who believe that the purpose of education is about, you know, uh, having an institution in a democratic society that prepares young people to understand how the world works, to develop their skills and talents and interests, to, you know, become socialized into a healthy loving community, and frankly, to learn the skills and dispositions needed to critique the system and actually make it better. And that is where the rub actually is. Like, you know, we all know the people who are shouting critical race theory don't know anything about critical race theory and they don't care to learn, right? So talking about critical race theory is, is a moot point with them. That's not what the real discussion is, right? The real discussion is preservation of a system of white supremacist power and capitalist power that they believe preserves their place in the dominant position. Even, even if they're broken, got one tooth and living in a trailer park, they believe that it preserves their, their position of, of supremacy within the caste system and, um, and they will fight to protect it, right? And, and then there's the rest of us who are saying like, no, that's not the purpose. That's not what we're going to do here. And, um, and right now we are you know, engaged in kind of an existential battle. Because um, it's it's come to a head publicly. I think what you're saying is really interesting because even with what you're saying, I feel like, well, I'm probably more along the lines of the people that are in the first group. That's what I think education does, but I don't think that's what education should do, right? Um, and so I'm wondering if that's really what the conversation is. What is it that education does versus what we believe education should be about? Like, I would love for it to be about enhancement of ourselves and our communities, and at the same time, what we've seen as far as the results, we're seeing something totally different. We're seeing kids getting pushed out of the school system into the prison system, right? Um, which is why I'm not the biggest fan of the people that people like to praise right now. I've been very open about the fact that I don't fuck with Kamala Harris because um, I have a big problem with um, the way that we're the way that we treat people in education, parents and students. And then the impact that it has on our communities as a result. So we're getting more of our, you know, more students getting pushed out of these systems, out of education and into the prison system. Or they're coming out of college, going to high school, going to college and then coming out to work the same jobs that they would have gotten without a degree 20 years ago. Right. And you're not getting paid much more. And, you know, I lived and most of my friends that I grew up with and many of us went to college. We're all living in the same circumstances as our parents. And our parents might, may or may not have had college degrees, right? So I would love for it to be about the enhancement of us, but it doesn't seem like that has been the case. It seems like it's been more about how do we be more of their labor. So I'm wondering if it is, if it should be, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm sorry, I'm wondering if what we're saying it should be is in line with the goals of America. 
Yeah, and I think there that's the the dilemma there. Just like you could point to the founding documents and say there there's a dilemma there because it, it preaches one thing, but the actual practice is is something different. And right. for education, you know, I, I would absolutely agree that education, the way it's set up and the way it has historically functioned, has been to uphold what Jeff referred to as this caste system. Um, it's been to uphold that, and, and even even here in this big year of 2021, we see people celebrating things like you know, I, I think it was a Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine opened up a new school or going to open up a new school, which, you know, sounds great, but it's, you know, they said the purpose of the school is to prepare students for jobs at, at Apple and at, you know, they listed a couple of companies and stuff. It's like, why, why does education have to be set up to prepare students to be part of this, this uh, international global corporation that doesn't care two shits about our community? Like it, and, you know, we see that celebrated on the news, the opening of the schools. Uh, and it's, I would say there are certainly educators who are out there in the classrooms helping helping prepare students to critically analyze the conditions around them, the uh, critically analyze the past, present, and future in order to make hopefully a, a more liberating, humanizing reality for themselves and their families and their communities. But those educators are few and far between, and they are part of a system that does not make that type of work easy. And there's pushback the whole way. And certainly, certainly there's a dilemma between what education should do and could do uh, versus what it historically has been doing. And I don't think we're anywhere near um, resolving that dilemma there. Yeah, def- definitely not. Uh, you know, I think what you're naming, Vita, is the like sort of the revolutionaries uh, conundrum, if you will. Right. It's like um, to a certain extent, we all have the burden of needing to figure out how to make it in the world we live in now. Right. Because if we don't have a place to live and food and, you know, and these sorts of things, right, we can't survive. Um, And at the same time, the more energy we put into investing into that work, which is on some level about propping up the current system, we are worsening the problem, right? Or certainly perpetuating um, the problem, right? And so, you know, I, this people have been talking about this for hundreds of years. And, and, you know, the reality is like, I'm not prepared to unplug from the system and go grow my own vegetables, you know, in, in some area and live off the land by myself, right? Um, so, to, so to a certain extent, I have to do what I need to do to function in this world. And I think as educators, we also have the burden of, uh, not burden in a, in a negative sense, but we have the responsibility of working with students and communities to say, hey, the world is messed up. How are we going to engage with it, interact with it, operate within it in a way that doesn't crush us? Right. Um, And to me, that's where I find some hope in the equation. Right. It's like, you know, in a perfect utopian society, in my mind, we would still have school. Now, school would look different and be, you know, produce perhaps different outcomes than uh, than what it does currently. But like the concept of public school, we would still have in, in my mind. And so that's where I think there's, you know, there's some hope is to say like, well, we can bring to life at least some features of that right here and now to talk with young people, to engage with, you know, with families about things that can support them um, and be, you know, culturally affirming, sustaining, liberative for them, um, even in the face of a system we know is is oppressive. You know what um, I really appreciate about both of you is that you guys remain optimistic. 
<laughs> despite all the challenges and the things that you've witnessed. And I think that lends to why you do the work that you do in the way that you do it, in addition to your your show and educating educators and parents and those who are interested in education, is that you guys have this sort of optimism that at least in your realm, you can change things. And I think that's very powerful to hear because sometimes it can feel almost overwhelming. And I'm sure if there's educators listening to this, they probably feel like, well, damn, I want to do all these things. I want to change education and I want to, you know, um, make it so that our kids are getting an education that fulfills them and supports our communities. But I don't know how to do that. I don't know where to go. I And also, I think that overwhelming feeling can make things worse for some people. Some people get jaded. Like, I'm sure you've seen the older teachers who've been working for a long time. They might have started off young and enthusiastic. But by the time, you know, they're a little bit older, they're kind of almost ready. They're, they're about to retire. They're almost over this. How do you maintain that optimism? That's a good question. <laughs> and it varies. Uh, you know, it varies. Okay. I, you know, I've been in this 18 years now. This is my, I just started the 18th year teaching in the classroom. And and it varies. And, and this, for me, this year, it's having the opportunity finally to to teach ethnic studies, to teach some critical consciousness, some humanizing pedagogy, some some actual black history, some actual indigenous history in the classroom on the up and up, like all board approved and all that stuff. So I don't have to look over my shoulder. And that's like giving me hope. It's like I entered the profession partially because I hated that when I was in high school, I hardly learned anything in history that I felt was like relevant. I didn't learn any, any black history. I didn't learn any Latin American history, anything like that. And I never, I, I just, I didn't want that to folks to have to wait to go to college to take classes like that. So, so here I am now with, you know, this opportunity. So for me, that's like, I, to answer your question of how I maintain hope, it's, it's the little things, the little, the little victories, the little wins, and also seeing young people. I've seen such a change in the young, in the teenagers, in my case, the teenagers that have come through my classroom over the course of the last 18 years, like the, there were certain years where there, there was so much apathy with regards to world issues, with regards to local issues, so much apathy. And it was really hard to get students to, uh, you know, quote unquote, care about certain issues. And now it's the opposite. Now it's like, yo, they are they are rearing for a fight. I feel like this younger generation, I don't know if it's because they have more access to information than any generation before them had, because they, they see all this stuff on on Twitter and TikTok and all over the place. Um, all these all these things happening around the world. I don't know if it's that. I don't know if it's something else. But like they're fed up with this world that we're handing them. Like they're fed up with the climate catastrophe. They're fed up with the racial injustice. They're they're fed up, and they're coming in. And I'm seeing students show up with with language that previous generations of students who I've had didn't have. Like the, you know now like terms like privilege and systemic and oppression. Like this is stuff that students are showing up already with that language. And they certainly didn't learn that in school unless they had, you know, teachers similar to, to Jeff and I. So it's like, yo, they are ready, man. And that also gives me hope. You know, it's, it's, it's. See, uh, I don't but, know. Yeah, I, I don't that, know. That, the thing about the, the kids coming in sometimes they, cause they getting it off Twitter and they just be repeating shit. And I just, Hey, hey, that's better. That's better than. I mean, when I first started teaching, kids were coming in, and the only stuff that they were talking about was like flavor of love and shit like that. It's like, well, at least they're like, yeah, they they might be repeating stuff that they don't fully understand. But I rather that than just like, yo, did you watch last night? Like, no, I didn't watch last night. So it's (laughs) hey, the little things. I'm telling you, it's the little things. I I I love that. That's a good point. Basically, you know, there you at least you have something to build from. You start. Oh, you've heard of this term. Okay, let's let's build off of that. Okay, I got you. <laughs> you know, I, love I, it. I think for me it is because I, I don't work with students directly. And uh, 
So I, I, you know, I miss that aspect of things in terms of there's a lot of hope um, that I think you can just draw from young people because, you know, young people are always looking ahead. Right. And they're always like wanting good things for the future, um, not being burdened with the, you know, the the bitterness of uh, of folks who are older. But um, but I think at the same time, I, I don't know if the word optimistic is the right word for me at least to capture how I feel. Um, and, you know, I'd have to like go to the dictionary and <laughs> get the actual definition here. But like, I, I to me, I, I feel it's not that I have a lot of confidence that um, that like things are going in a, in a great direction and that we are, you know, we're making uh, great progress, right? I just uh, was texting. So I, I grew up in, uh, in Minnesota. I was just texting with some friends of mine, old friends of mine who were there, um, big front page article in the Minneapolis paper yesterday talking about how the police chief um, is making public statements real confident now that they're going to expand funding for the police department so they can hire more cops. Now, this is in Minneapolis, the ground zero of last summer's you know uprising in the city where the mayor got booed off the streets by the people because he wouldn't talk about defunding the police, where the city council ostensibly voted to defund the police. And now here we are a year later and we're increasing funding to the very police department that was the embodiment of, you know, structural racism, right? Which is not to say the police department everywhere isn't that. But, you know, the one that was they were on- a national conversation. Exactly, right? And so there's no shame in their game, right, at all. Even in Minneapolis, they're out here proudly talking about hiring more cops and continuing to abuse and, and you know, persecute us. And so, you know, it's, I don't feel optimistic seeing those things. At the same time, and maybe this is, you know, sort of at the root of, of being an educator in some ways, I feel like despair and despondency aren't really options for us, right? I look at the students we serve and I say, they're not going to just like fold over and do nothing, right? Um, I, I, I just got home today before we started filming this and it smells like smoke. Uh, again, at least where I live here. <laughs> and, you know, so I got all the doors closed and the air filters on yet again, right? And, and because of the fires, right? Like climate change is in our face. Police violence is in our face. All these things that are big, ugly, historic problems are in our face. And at the same time, we got this generation of youth coming up who are like, so what are we going to do about this? Like, <laughs> you know, we can't just sit here and do nothing. And I think that's where I draw my sense of like, purpose is maybe a better word than than optimism because i i the folks aligned on on the side of white supremacy and capitalism are fighting hard for really bad things right now and the reality is we have to fight back with equal force all right y'all so that is the end of part one go to again patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.